Welcome to Comforting Closure, Conversations with a Death Doula. I'm your host, Tracy Ariely. Each week, I bring you guests who've dedicated themselves to helping people navigate the practical, emotional, and spiritual aspects of aging, death, and grieving. Grab your favorite warm drink and settle in for an enlightening conversation that aims to demystify and destigmatize these natural, yet often unspoken aspects of our human journey. Hello, everyone. I'm Tracy Ariely, end of life doula and founder of Comforting Closure. Making choices about our end of life care is one of the most important and personal things we can do, and these choices will have significant effects on our last days. This is the first of a two part series about end of life options. I'm happy to welcome Angela Schultz to the podcast. She is a regional advocacy manager for Compassion and Choices. Compassion and Choices is a nonprofit group that works to improve care, give people more choices, and give them the power to plan their own end-of-life journey. It's great to have you here, Angela. Welcome. Thanks, Tracy. It's great to be here. Can you start by telling us a little bit about Compassion and Choices and how it supports people at the end of their lives? Yeah, so Compassion and Choices has been around since 2005, um, and we're the oldest, largest, and most active nonprofit working to improve care, expand options, and empower everyone to chart their own end-of-life journey. Uh, so we're actually a grassroots organization. So um, while I'm an employee, I oversee, we have like 400,000 volunteers across the country um, who go out and give presentations, um, you know, hand out materials. Everything that we offer is free as we're a nonprofit. Um, and it's we just have tons of resources available um, online on our website. We have a end of life consultation line. So if you have specific questions about, um, you know, like you're not sure how to navigate a hospital system or, you know, how to interview a hospice, then they can call the end of life consultation program. But really, we just go out and inform and educate people about um, their end of life choices. And then we also have a legal department that helps us um, you know, we often, some of the laws that we pass, we'll get lawsuits against them. Um, and then we pass, one of the things we're most known for is passing the medical aid and dying bills across the country. Um, so right now we have 10 states plus Washington, D.C. So we manage those campaigns. Um, but then the way we look at it is medical aid and dying is on one spectrum. And from the minute you, you know, realize that you're coming to your end of life, that medical aid and dying can sometimes open up a conversation for you to have better health care at the end of life and for you to have those conversations with your doctors. So we're really about just empowering everybody, no matter what they choose. So, um, I know that we spoke about the lack of education surrounding end-of-life options in medical school. Um, doctors are trained to extend lives, and it's really difficult for them to discuss end-of-life options with the families and the patient. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I mean... I think that doctors often, what the feedback that we receive is that, you know, their job is to try to cure people a lot of times. Um, and oftentimes what we are told is that they feel kind of like they failed if they're not curing people. Um, when in reality, you know, death is part of life. Um, so part of what also happens with medical aid and dying is so like in California, um, the bill passed in 2015, um, but you have a whole bunch of doctors who never received any sort of education about medical aid and dying, even on top of, you know, just all end-of-life planning. It's just something that not a lot of people talk about. Um, U of A recently did a study, and 95% of the students that were in pharmacy, um, doctors, nurses, and public health received little to no education on end-of-life. Um, so they did a pilot program and 98% of the people said, this is great information and we're going to use it in our future practice. Um, so it is something that, you know, New Mexico was the most recent state to pass. So that was 2021. So again, you have all these doctors who haven't ever talked about medical aid and dying as well there. And so it is something that we work on trying to go out and practice and educating them. We have a whole clinical engagement team. Uh, we have national doctors that are prescribers for medical aid and dying and all end of life options. So we have a free doc to doc line that offers free and confidential, basically mentorship for any sort of end of life conversations that 
a person wants to have. And even when we have heard that like doctors feel like they're pretty good at giving these end of life conversations, um, oftentimes the nurses will step in and say like, um, you know, it might help if somebody else also comes in and says something you know, like they try, you know, um, but sometimes I think it's just programmed in them to try to save people's lives so much that it can be difficult to have that conversation. So let's talk about medical aid and dying. It's legal in 11 states uh, or 10 states and, and D.C. What is medical aid and dying and how do individuals and their families typically approach this option? So medical aid and dying is available to people who you have to be an adult. You have to be mentally capable of making your own health care decisions. You have to um, have a terminal illness with less than six months to live. So the same as hospice. And um, you have to be able to self-ingest the medication. Um, so sometimes people will get it confused and say, like medical aid and dying is the same as physician assisted suicide. But really what medical aid and dying is doing is one of the biggest feedback that we get from families and um, individuals who use it is it gives them back a sense of control. So the individual is in control of the whole process. They're making the requests to ask the doctor. They're ingesting the medication. They can choose not to, even after they get the prescription, they can choose not to use it. Um, but often what we hear from family members too, is as soon as the person gets the medication, a sense of their anxiety just really goes away because they know that if their suffering gets too great for them, whatever that may look like for them, um, that, you know, they, they don't have to continue suffering and can have a peaceful death this way. And so typically the, another feedback that we get from families is it really gives people during their last couple of weeks um, the ability to, you know, gather all their friends together, say their goodbyes, get some closure, um, have conversations with people that, you know, maybe they wouldn't have, if, you know, they didn't know if they didn't have a date that they were picking, you know, planning on picking the medication. A lot of times too, I'm not sure if you've done these as an end of life doula, but they have like um, the living funerals, I think they're called. Um, and so like people will invite their friends over rather than saying it after somebody has passed away, saying all the great things you think about this person. Some people choose to have that beforehand and hear about it and then turn around. We had one person who wanted his friends to all roast him. Um, <laughs> and then he did it back to them, but then he bought all his favorite food and sent it home with all his guests and just told them how much it meant to him that they were there. Um, so the process can look different for everybody. 90% of the people utilize hospice services. Um, I do know some people that, you know, decide that they don't want to use hospice. Um, I've had, a, you know, they pick their favorite spot. So one person um, that we had in, Cali in Colorado that used it, um, her and her husband went up on a mountain, watched the sunset, and then she drank it with wine. Um, and I have another gentleman in California who him and his wife, his wife had taken the medication and they went out on their farm, watched the sunrise. Um, she was surrounded by her husband and all her animals. And then she drank the medication. That's, that's really nice. I know that in every state, it's a little bit different. And, and as far as the process, I know in California as a, an example, you know, all states, I think that you need to, to request it twice. There has to be a certain uh, period between the first request and the second. Usually it's, it's two weeks. And in California, it was reduced to 48 hours. Um, so every state is a little bit different. Is it necessary to actually have a doctor in the room while you ingest the medication or is it necessary to have a doctor there during that process i know when i uh, have or for hospice i've been uh, asked uh, from the hospice group that i work with to actually step out of the room when the person is ingesting the medication whereas if i'm there alone as an end-of-life doula i will be with that person so can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah, it is actually one of, I feel like, the greatest gifts that I've been able to hear doulas give um, individuals through this process, through many processes, but in particular with medical aid and dying. I know a doula up in Oregon um, who has stayed there with people through the process, and it is a unique experience um, for somebody to go to. So oftentimes the family members, you know, going to a bereavement group is a very different experience for them. And so being able to then talk to their end of life doulas, some of them specialize too with, um, you know, like coping with grief. Um, they've been able to maintain that relationship with the doula afterwards and kind of process what they went through as well. Um, but medical aid and dying is, uh, there's a federal statute. So it allows any doctor, healthcare um, provider, or healthcare, like hospital to opt out of providing this as a service, um, which can be tricky sometimes when you're looking for a provider. Um, and so what happens, some of the hospices will have their, they all have their own policies. Some don't participate at all. I would think the majority of them that I've talked to do exactly what you said when they require the hospice staff to leave the room um and then come back in afterwards but some of the hospice also allow the staff and volunteers to stay there um during the process but i think the majority is probably what you just mentioned um so in california it used to be a 15-day waiting period which was part of the um protections from the oregon law when it was first enacted in 1997 and so it was thought to be like we'll give people you have to make your first request and then you have to wait 15 days, make sure that like you really want this, think about it, and then make your second request um, 15 days later. And that was kind of the model bill across the country. Um, and again, that was 1997. And Oregon actually collects the most data out of all states on medical aid and dying. Um, and so Kaiser did a study. Um, and what they found was over, it was about 25% of people that started the process and made the request 15 days in, um, their first 15 days either died or were too ill to continue going on with the process. Um, so that is the reason why we went back and amended the California law to make it 48 hours. Um, because I think sometimes people have this conception that like, you know, oh, like, Primarily, the number one reason people choose medical aid and dying is because they're dying from cancer. Um, and so, I, like, I think there's this conception out there that people think, like, oh, you're just going to make, like, a rash decision and choose medical aid and dying, when really people have oftentimes tried many other treatments, um, you know, traveled across the world to try other treatments, um, but they are dying. And when they finally come to terms with that and they start trying to go through the process, um, you know, I think we say you have to have six months or less, but I think most people will try to go through this process in like the last couple of weeks of their life when it, you know, fully sets in that they are going to die. Um, and they're not sure when, but it ends up usually just being a couple of weeks that they have left over. So what is the experience of someone who is choosing to use medical aid in dying? I, I know that we spoke about that, those first two requests, but after that, what is the, the process? Yes. So if there is any concern too, during the part when you make the first request, um, that you might not have decision-making capabilities, um, it is part of the law that um, if the it's called the attending physician. Um, and they're the ones who's going to prescribe you the medication. Um, and then you have a consulting physician that, that you also ha have to meet with, who also determines that, yes, you're terminally ill with less than six months to live. Um, if either of those two physicians think that you might not have decision-making capabilities and don't understand that, like, by taking this medication, it is, you're going to die, um, then you get referred to a mental health professional to do an evaluation. Um, so not everybody goes, has to be referred, but if there's any concern, then you do that. Um, after you make your second request, um, the pharmacist usually will reach out to you, kind of explain to you what the medication is. Um, and then you, 
you can either go pick up or they can send it to you like through a courier. Um, and then once you get the medication, it's it's up to you. So I know doctors that want to be there with all of their patients when they take the medication. Um, and I, but it's again, it's up to the patient, right? Do they want the doctor there? Do they want it to just be them and their loved ones? Um, and then they just have the medication until they decide to take it. If they decide not to take it, it gets disposed of the way any sort of hospice medication would or any kind of medication according to DEI or DEA guidelines. So now I know there are a lot of fears of uh, people being forced to use medical aid and dying. And, and you talked briefly about, hey, they have to go through two physicians. Um, are there other safeguards that are in place that ensure that this option is carried out ethically and safely? Yeah. So if a doctor has any concern too, that the patient might be being coerced into this, um, they also take them and they're required to have a private conversation with them to find out, is this really what you want to do? Making sure like no family members or anyone else is involved. I think one of the things too, with the six month prognosis, um, cause we get this question a lot, like what if somebody, um, you know, just wants their loved one's money, you know, um, the thing is, is, the person is dying, you know, so whether, and as I mentioned, they usually request this medication. Um, unfortunately, I think, because a lot of times they don't know it's even an option for them. Um, so they usually request it during their last weeks of life. So whether or not they take this medication or not, um, they are going to die. Um, and so it's not a matter of like, just trying to, you know, kill grandma so we can get her money. Um, and then being able to self-ingest is another thing. So the person has to be able to self-ingest the medication and they can do that through drinking it. Um, I've heard it tastes really awful, um, very bitter. And so um, one doctor I know, I think he said chocolate ice cream was the best that he had found to kind of take away from it or like a raspberry sorbet. Um, you can also do it through um, a gastro tube, but the person has to be able to do it themselves. Um, and one of the concerns that we get is after cancer, people who have ALS are usually, or Parkinson's, some sort of nervous system um, disorder, they are the second most group to use it. Um, but depending on their symptoms, they may lose the ability to be able to self-ingest, that they lose the ability to use their hands. Um, so there's a lot of concerns from, I mean, again, not everybody with ALS wants to use medical aid in dying, right? Um, but there are some concerns for people who have ALS who do want to use it, but know that they won't be able to. Um, and so they're actually working on some new technology too, where like they can, you know, be able to communicate with their eyes and be able to push the levers through that way. It hasn't come out yet, but they're working on it. But there was a different lawsuit in California, um, not by us, um, but they were trying to change the timeline of six months or less um, so that people with ALS would be able to use it. And there's lots of people that want to make changes to it, the law um, so that it becomes more widely available. But again, all of that criteria that we outlined is the safety protection because like I just saw one and they wanted to extend it to like 18 months if a person has a diagnosis of 18 months. Um, but you're really kind of, you know, even doctors aren't good at determining how long somebody has to live. Um, and so again, sometimes I know doctors have given the medication to people and said like, I'll give you this medication, but why, you know, why don't you just try this one other treatment? And I, there's one doctor in California who did a case study on the 50 patients that he had prescribed to. And one of them ended up going on the trial treatment. Um, and is two years later is still alive. Um, so it can, like I said, it can really open up the conversations around it. I think everybody really tries hard to protect it because everyone who practices it, I think, recognizes that it can be such a gift to the person and to their family members. And so there's reporting requirements after, um, after you go through the process, the doctor and consulting doctor have to fill it out and submit it to the public health department. Um, and like, you know, did they ingest it? 
um, you know, how many people did you give the medication to? What happened to the medication? And so it's very much, I mean, it is very much overseen by the government, um, which a lot of people often have complaints about because that makes it more difficult, right? Yep. So <laughs> how, um, now doctors who don't want to participate in medical aid and dying, is it a requirement? You know, they could step back and say, no, this, I don't want to prescribe. I don't, you know. Is there a requirement for them to say, but I know someone who does, or you you could go here? No, so it's not. And it's also not a require. I was going to say, um, there have been a couple of laws. So New Mexico had their law in 2021 that required doctors to do that. And then in California, um, it was when somebody made the request, because you have to make the two requests, um, if I made the request to my doctor and my doctor said, um, no, I don't participate in this, the, it's your medical note. So they just needed to write down that you made the request. Um, and so in both of those two states, the same organization sued the state. It was the um, Christian Medical and Dental Association. Um, and in both cases, they won because of the federal statute. And they were saying that even by writing it down, or making the referral, it was forcing these doctors to participate in the process. Um, so now in California, that has been taken out. And then same with New Mexico, it's taken out. They don't even have to bring it up as the end of life option. I know that um, as, as far as the time frame from that process of, of request through actually receiving the medication, that there isn't uh, a set time frame. The first, you know, there's a time frame between the first and the second request. You know, the the 48 hours or the the 15 uh, days. But there isn't a time frame for when that secondary consult doctor gets called or or. So, uh, as an example, Kaiser, I know they said that it usually takes give or take three weeks from the time that first request to when you receive the prescription. Um, so is that true with all states? Is there any push to to say, here's the time frame that this needs to get done? So Kaiser um, is can be a wonderful hospital to work with, but they're a large organization, right? So that is why it takes them so long to go through this process. Um, there are individual doctors, um, family physicians that, and we have um, a volunteer for us actually in L.A., and she's called LA Patient Advocate. And her whole goal is just to help people navigate the medical aid and dying process. And she can, from the time somebody requests the medication, um, especially if she doesn't think they're gonna make it past the you know, three days, um, she works so hard and she can get people from the time they request the medication, medication in hand, as soon as that 48 hours is up. Legal challenges, you spoke a little bit about them. Um, how has dissent uh, shaped this landscape in the states where MAID is permitted? So usually it is has been around doctors' rights. I am lucky enough, I feel, that um, I seem to get the states that get sued. <laughs> so, um we have done our own, our legal team has done its own lawsuits as well. So um, I'll talk first about those two and then um, the, the states that have been sued and what our legal team is also doing. So um, in Oregon, uh, we filed, this was in I think, April of 2022, um, we filed to remove the residency requirements for medical aid and dying. And so um, our legal team had a client who was a doctor in Portland and Portland and Seattle or in Washington borders, very, very close. Um, and so a lot of the people that live in Washington will go over to Portland for their medical care. And if they're seeing them, they weren't able, even though medical aid and dying was legal in both states, the doctors weren't able to prescribe them the medication. Um, and so we sued because at the time, this was the only health, um, you know, only healthcare issue that had any sort of residency requirements. Now abortion has been added to that. Um, 
But so we won that case. And now we're also suing in New Jersey. Um, and we have, I think there's like four clients they have around the states of New Jersey who are, are trying to access medical aid and dying, but because they don't live in the state um, and not a resident, they're not able to. And then in Vermont, we also had a lawsuit and they came back and said um, that this is up to the state legislature to determine. And they, so our team out there ran a bill through the state to remove the residency and the governor who is a Republican signed it. And so now you don't have to be a resident in Vermont either. Um, and so we're, that we're just hoping will help open up access. You still have to be in a state where it's legal to use medical aid in dying. Um, so for example, I live in Arizona. I can't go to Oregon and get my prescription, fly back home. Um, but it does give people, it expands it a little bit, gives people a little bit more option. Um, obviously, there's lots of barriers there as well. And we know that most people do want to die in their home. Um, so it kind of defeats the process, you know, the purpose if you have to fly to Oregon and take the medication there. Um, so in California, the, the two medical, the two challenges that I already mentioned by the Christian Medical and Dental Association um, were really about protecting doctors' rights. And so there is another lawsuit in California, um, and it is a group of disability organizations, and then two residents in California who are living with disabilities um, are suing the state of California to overturn um, the medical aid and dying law. Um, and what sparked it was the amendment, um, so changing it from 15 days to 48 hours. Um, and one of the, um, they're doing lots of advertising on it. So you, like you can go and read the stories in the YouTube. And so one of the gentlemen who is part of the lawsuit um, was saying that he, he was, he was, he wasn't, I don't know if he was sick or ill, but not feeling good, right? He went to his doctor and I mean, it is true that people living with disabilities have, you know, faced horrible things by the healthcare institutions, you know, over centuries, right? And everyone at Compassion and Choices agrees with that um, and want everybody to have the best care that they can get. Um, and so apparently his one doctor said um, something along the lines of like, well, this is the end. You know, I told you that this was how it was gonna end for you and like left him feeling like he was going to die. Um, nobody mentioned medical aid and dying as an option for him, um, but he thought about it. He knew it was an option. And so he started thinking, you know, maybe I should request this medication and end my life. And then somebody told him, you know, you should really go get a second opinion. He went to a different doctor and that doctor said, oh no, there's all these other kind of treatment options we can do. Um, and so, you know, he's still alive and enjoying his life. Um and so because of the 48 hours, they're saying that because there is kind of like a lack of services around mental health and because of the way the healthcare systems are set up, um, that people are going to be thinking more about what they're calling um, completing suicide. Um, again, that's not what medical aid and dying is for. Um, you have to have the diagnosis of six months or less to live. Um, this gentleman, it doesn't sound like he had that diagnosis, prognosis of six months or less to live. Obviously, there were a lot of other treatment options available. Um, and again, it's totally up to that person. Um, you know, we encourage everybody, you know, do all the treatment that you want, whatever it is that you want to do, you know, do that. But there comes a time when, you, you know, again, we're all going to die. Um, and so we just want people to have, you know, whatever kind of end of life experience they want. So having a disability alone um, does not make you eligible for medical aid and dying. And what we've seen with polling across the country is that 70% of people living with disabilities do support medical aid and dying. Um, the organizations that are suing um, the state of California have been trying to do this since 1997 um, and overturn it. And a lot of the fallacies that I think they think might happen, we have had no 
evidence of anything ever coming up in the 27 years that it's existed in Oregon um, or any other state. But we do, again, have 27 years worth of data um, that proves that there's never been any, you know, case of coercion or misuse of the medication. So I think, I mean, it's a fear. I get that. And, you know, in the case that you just were talking about, that's more, uh, that's really rooted in a different issue, a, a different problem that we as a society need to fix. Um, so, yes. Yeah. So, um, so you, what are some of the other myths surrounding medical aid and dying? Um, I would say that again, people, um, I think the one that like really will bother me is when people call it physician assisted suicide, um, because that's just so different in my mind. Um, I grew up in Michigan. My mom's a nurse. Um, she worked at University of Michigan. And like when we were little, Dr. Kevorkian used to work at U of M and was there and we watched his trial. Um, and my mom always says like, to some level, she agrees with it, which now she's in agreement with medical aid and dying. She just didn't agree with the way that he was necessarily doing it. Um, but I, so I think it's, people think it's your doctor's going to come over and inject you with some sort of medication. Um, and that like, you know, you may die very early, you know, you may have a lot more, um, treatment options available to you that you could go on and live your life for a very long time which is just not the case, right? Um, the majority of people, as I mentioned, do go out and try. I think Brittany Menard um, is probably the most well-known person who used medical aid in dying. Um, she was the 29-year-old who had glioblastoma in Oregon um, and took the medication. This was in 2014. Um, and she did YouTube videos on why she was choosing this. She had just gotten married. They were thinking about having a family when she got the diagnosis. And the symptoms from her cancer were just like unrelentless to her. Um, and she tried everything that she could to stay alive, um, but she was going to die. And that became very clear to her. And when her suffering got too much, she took the medication. Um, and again, so again, she took the medication. She had to ask her doctor. It's not easy to get. Um, if you've helped people through it, I'm sure you know how difficult it can be to find it. Um, there are some local groups. Um, so in California, it's called um, California End of Life. Um, uh, they're the only one that is different. Everybody else is like Colorado End of Life Options. Um, I think their End of Life Choice is California. Um, so they can help if you can't find a doctor. Um, you can call them and they can try to help you kind of, you know, they have, they work with a lot of patients across California. So they know different names and, you know, healthcare systems. Um, but if you don't know they exist, right, um, then you would never think to call them. Um, and so it can be very, very challenging to find a doctor. Um, when you go in and you're talking to your doctor about treatment, um, I don't, it's it's not required that most doctors even bring it up that it's an option. Um, and even if a doctor is willing to prescribe, I don't even think that they bring it up as an option until the person makes the request for it. Um, so it's not like this is just getting pushed on people to try to end their lives. Um, another thing is with um, insurance, when you die um, on your death certificate, it lists the cause of your death um, as the reason you died. So if you have cancer and you take medical aid and dying, it lists, you know, your cancer diagnosis as the cause of your death or, you know, like heart failure, whatever it is. Um, and so that way it doesn't impact your um, insurance for your family or anything like that. So I think there are some concerns around that kind of stuff um, that I think just education and information getting out into the community is helpful. Yeah, I, there there are a lot of, uh, I was asked, oh, what is this going to do to the life insurance policy? And you still, you know, that's still valid because as you said, it is seen as you're dying of your disease, you're dying of, of what you're actually dying of. Um, so, and you brought up a great point where this isn't, this isn't uh, dying of suicide. You know, the person isn't, people who die of suicide, they, it's, an, you know, they want to 
to end their lives. But people who are looking at medical aid and dying, they are dying. It's not like they are, you know, they want to live. Yeah, but unfortunately, they're dying. Um, and this is uh, just an option to, to help with quality of life. Uh, it's really a quality of life uh, decision and, and what you want your quality of life to be at the end of your life. Yeah. And it is an authorized medical practice, you know, so like doctors that do prescribe, um, they, we offer trainings. There's another, um, the American clinicians, are you familiar with them? I just know, I'm thinking of their Acamate is what they're called, but it's American clinicians, something. Uh, we'll look it up and we'll put it in the, in the, uh, in the description of, of this podcast. But they also really try to help physicians through this process and answer questions. If people have any sort of ethical concerns, um, they can email it in there. They can, again, call our doc-to-doc line. And it's just a whole bunch of different medical professionals coming together um, who practice this and giving each other feedback and mentorship and stuff. So, And uh, from an insurance perspective, I know that Medicare, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but Medicare actually does uh, cover this. In the states, no. of course. Oh. No, Medicaid sometimes will cover it. Um, so in 1997, it's called the Assisted Suicide Restriction Act, I believe. Um, Assisted Suicide Restricted Funding Act. So um, again, very outdated from 1997, but it, it doesn't allow any federal funds to go towards um hastening somebody's death in this way. And so um, if you go in your health insurance through the VA, um, if it's through TRICARE um, or Medicare, those three will not cover it. Medicaid receives federal funding, but it's also state funds. Um, so each state can make a decision if they want um, Medicaid to cover it and use state funds to do it. So California, Hawaii, and New Mexico, I know do, and I think there's one other state, but that's even challenging to find out. <laughs> How about, pri so it's private insurance. Many private insurance will cover this. Yeah, a lot of private insurance will cover it. Um, again, another obstacle is trying to find out if your insurance will cover it, um, because, you know, less than 1% of people in states where this is authorized, use medical aid in dying. So the amount of times your insurance had to, you know, try to determine if they cover it, it's probably going to be very small. Um, so trying to navigate that can also be tricky. But yeah, I mean, they do insurance will cover it. Some pharmacies, I know um, some different healthcare systems, if somebody doesn't have the means to pay for it, we'll just give them the medication. It's a compound medication, so it's a little bit more expensive to make. Um, I've, I've heard it as cheap as like $400. I think on average, it's like $750, um, just for the medication. So again, there is that, that definite barrier. Um, so let's uh, move on to voluntary, voluntary stopping eating and drinking or VSED. And I'm going to just call it VSED from this point on. Um, can you explain what VSED is and under which circumstances do individuals use this option? So VSED is a legal option for everybody in all 50 states. Um, and it is when a person, again, who has all their full decision-making capabilities uh, makes a decision that they're going to voluntarily stop eating and drinking everything, um, basically just to hasten their death. Uh, typically, uh, people who choose this option um, if they have a terminal illness but live in a state where medical aid and dying is not authorized, I know people have made the choice to do this. Um, if there's something, you know, going on um, where they're just having like intolerable suffering at the end of life, they've made a decision to do this. We have a storyteller who um, his dad did this at age 99. Um, and he, his wife had died a couple years earlier. Uh, he had always lived on his own. 
Um, and he started falling a lot and his health was starting to decline and it was time for him to move into, you know, some sort of care center. Um, and his dad just said like, I've lived a life well lived and that's not the decision that I want to do. I, I want to stay in my home and die in my home. So he decided to do voluntary stop eating and drinking. Um, and then people who have received a diagnosis of dementia, um, again, you can, I think sometimes people think when you get diagnosed with dementia that you lose that decision-making capabilities, but you can still live sometimes depending on when you get diagnosed with it, a couple of years, um, you know, still being able to make your own healthcare decisions. Um, but most of the time when I hear people who want to, you know, I, I have a couple of friends whose parents have done this um, because they, one of my friends, her mom, did be said when she had dementia because she saw her mom go through dementia and said the end of life and was just like that's not the end of life experience I want anymore so before her mom lost her decision keep making capabilities her mom went through the visa process so I would say those are usually the reasons why people choose to make it how do uh, medical professionals support patients and their families when they decide they want to use visa yeah, so even though it's legal in all 50 states, um, again, not everyone is supportive of it. Um, so we always recommend as early as you can um, is to have conversations with your doctor about end of life and what you envision your end of life looking like, um, you know, what options you want and see if your doctor is supportive. Um, because the last thing you want to do is try to navigate the healthcare system when you're in a crisis. Um, so what doctors and some hospices will do, um, and some, a lot of times I go out and I do education and people will come up to me and say like, well, we've had a lot of like, um, you know, our patients asking about this, but we're not really familiar with the process. Um, you know, can you give me some education on this? And so I, I'll give them education on it, but then I also refer them to our doctor doc line. So if you call your hospital, you know, your local hospice, all hospices um, just kind of, you know, provide the same services, but also very different, right? Um, so call your hospice. We always recommend interviewing your hospices ahead of time, finding out if they're going to meet the needs that you're looking for. Ask them if they're supportive of voluntary stop eating and drinking. Um, and if they're not, you know, they say, we don't do that. Say, would you be willing to help me? You know, um, you can offer our doctor doc line as a free resource if they need help. Um, but we've heard from patients where the hospice then turns around and says, like, yeah, we'll be willing to help you. So some of it is just people don't know that this is an option. Again, because medical schools don't teach about it a lot. Um, and so what you don't need to have the difference between medical aid and dying, where you have to go through all these different doctors, you don't actually need a doctor or healthcare provider support for VSED. However, it will make it a lot more comfortable if you do get their support. Um, and so they can provide palliative care through the process. They can provide you with different pain medications to make sure that you stay comfortable. Um, definitely hospice with comfort care. You know, when you're going through the voluntary stop eating and drinking process, it is what you would go through through a natural death process. And so, you know, if it's just, I had one guy, um, I called him one time. Um, he had actually made a donation to us. And so I called him to thank him for the donation. And he was in rural New Mexico um, on day five of trying to do VSED and just there with his daughter, um, who is a veterinarian. And he's like, I know it's not the same, um, but I figured she could like help me a little bit. And I was like, oh man. Um, so, um, luckily I had called him and I was able to connect him and he was actually eligible for medical aid and dying, which is what he really wanted to do. Um, he just didn't know that he had that six month prognosis. Um, and so, uh, we were able to connect him with the hospice, um, with, there's a local group there, end of life options, New Mexico. Um, they knew a hospice that could go out and help him and go through the, you know, the medical aid and dying process instead, but it can make it very easy. Like, a, I don't want to say easy, but, 
um, a lot more peaceful if you have the support of your medical professionals. Um, they can also tell you, um, you know, like what kind of supplies you might want to get, making sure that you're not getting bed sores while you're going through the process. Um, while you don't need a medical professional, we do always recommend that you do have 24-hour support. Um, so I know some people, um, again, end of, like doulas are great. I know um, one of our volunteers, her and all of her friends, took turns going over with her friend and sitting through her during the process and helping her with whatever she needed, you know, making sure she was getting showers, um, you know, able to go to the bathroom, not falling over, not getting the bed sores. Um, so, yeah, it, our medical support team can be very helpful, though. <laughs> yeah, that's when I was being trained as an end-of-life doula, I was told, you know, made a, a person can take and be with their families you can be there it's it's relatively short a short time length but when someone's going through said that 24 hour a day care is really important uh you know getting it from either hospice getting it from friends and family um, it's necessary and the process can look a lot different so um you know, if you are a 75-year-old who's been pretty active and pretty healthy, um, but have a dementia diagnosis and you decide you want to do voluntary stop eating and drinking versus, you know, a 99-year-old um, who your body is really just giving out on you at, at the end of life, the amount of time that you're going to be alive going through the visa process can vary, as well as how well does the person actually stick to it. Um, I know some people, even just a little bit of fluids can extend your life. Um, and so if you really do, you know, no eating and drinking and you have other, you know, illnesses going on, you know, it, it could maybe take three days versus if you're a pretty healthy person and kind of, you know, like cheating here and there. I don't want to call it cheating, but, you know, like having a little bit to drink here and there you know, it could take three weeks. Um, so, and the other thing with said is that I think is really important is it is, again, uh, what we really believe in too at Compassionate Choices is patient-directed care where patients are making the decisions about their care. And so it, it's another very patient-driven care. And so if I am, if I've decided I want to do voluntary stuff, eating and drinking, um, and then you know, I have my caregivers there, maybe it's hospice, and I tell them like, oh, you know, I really want some eggs and bacon. Like, I just woke up and I'm so hungry. I want this. Um, it's important to have a conversation ahead of time with them to say like, I understand that you are ethically bound to give me food if I ask for it, but can you also give me a gentle reminder and said, you know, I'm happy to get you some eggs and bacon. I did want to remind you that you had chosen to do voluntary stop eating and drinking. Do you still want to continue with this process or do you want me to get you the eggs and bacon? Um, and then you can make the decision. You can say, oh, no, I still want to keep with voluntary stop eating and drinking. Or you say, I want the eggs and bacon, right? Like, So totally up to you. Are there legal issues or ethical concerns associated with VSED? We always recommend too, without, I think a concern with both medical aid and dying, any end of life, right? People are, have concern about um, elder abuse, right? Um, and I'm a social worker. Um, so I, that is something I also would be concerned about. Like I want to make sure people are protected. Um, so some of the things that we recommend is that when people are going to make a decision to do voluntary stop eating and drinking, um, that they can make two videos. Um, one video was long and it would be me talking to my you know, iPhone and saying why I'm choosing voluntary stop eating and drinking and making it very clear that you know this was my decision to do this. This is why I wanna do this. Um, and then making a shorter video that just kind of like, you know, uplifts you while you're going through the process and reminds you, you know, kind of keep you going strong and motivating you to do what you, your wishes were. Um, and then some people talk to legal attorneys um, and will drop the attorneys can drop liability forms for them um, because what you don't want to have happen 
is your caregivers also be called like this is elder abuse because some people, you know, I may want this for myself, but you know, maybe, you know, my niece doesn't want this to happen to me and thinks that like, I'm again, trying to kill myself without realizing I'm dying as well. But um, so she might call the police or call somebody to come do a check on me. Um, so again, as long as you have everything documented, um, we also always encourage people, make sure you have your advanced directives if you're over 18. But again, make sure you've done your advanced directive. Um, we encourage people to talk to their doctor about getting a pulse. If they're going to do voluntary stop eating and drinking, um, physicians order, do you know what this Okay. Yeah, physician order of life-sustaining treatment, correct. And that's that's for, for those that don't know, um, you know, there are advanced directives and then there are posts, physician order uh, of life-sustaining treatment. Um, and that's when you get older or if you are sick, um, that's an order that they actually create and it, it sits in your file. Um, but you still need to hold on to that uh, in your home and, and uh, have that really readily available. Yeah. And a doctor fills it out. It's usually if you're terminally ill with like, if, it's kind of if somebody wouldn't be surprised if you were going to die within the next year. Um, and so we recommend, you know, we have people that will create like um, basically just a binder and then they make sure all of their caregivers have it, that it's readily available. And that way if anything comes up that it's ready to go. Most people um, don't have these legal issues come up um, and have supportive family. Um, but, you know, just in case something does come up, because it has happened where somebody has called the police, um, it's, it's just good to have it back up. Angela, thank you so much for being here. How can our viewers connect with Compassion and Choices and further support your mission? So please visit our website, compassionandchoices.org. Um, and you can make donations. So we are 97% uh, uh, funded by individual donations. Um, so that's how we do the work that we do, are able to give out all the free resources, um, do all the free education and webinars that we do. Um, you can sign up to be a volunteer. Um, so we have volunteers in every state. So if you want to go out and provide education um, to your community, you know, to your healthcare system. Uh, we have, if you are a healthcare provider, uh, we have a healthcare team that can also, we do peer-to-peer -peer trainings, um, or you can just sign up to be a supporter and get our email information so you can stay up to date and get resources and tips on how to make sure that you have an end of life that matches your values. Folks, understanding these choices can be overwhelming, but always remember that you're not alone on the path. Organizations like Compassion and Choices and other end-of-life professionals are here to guide and stand with you. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Should you have any questions, don't hesitate to comment below or get in touch with me personally. And if you have found this conversation to be helpful, please like, share, comment, and subscribe. Thank you.